We will talk this episode about a small but significant minority in medieval Cologne of the late 11th and early 12th century, the Jewish community of Cologne. We have heard nothing more about them in the written sources since the year 321 when they were chosen by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great to be appointed to the Cologne city senate as well. It is not until the late 11th century that we learn about them again in detail. Unfortunately, to a terrible event, the pogroms against the Jewish population in the cities of the Rhineland in the course of the First Crusade. And with that, hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old, but until it became what is what it is today, this old city has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. A little warning on the side. It should not surprise you that in a history podcast, unfortunately also the dark sides of human history come to light. Therefore, the small warning here. It will be a little more detailed than usual, especially since I will be quoting from contemporary Jewish written sources. What is this episode about? We look at the situation of the Jewish people at the time of the end of the 11th slash beginning of the 12th century. Then we come to the pogroms against Jewish people in the course of the First Crusade in the year 1096. And at the end, we look briefly at the further developments of the Jewish community in Cologne in the 12th century. Off to the intro. Jewish life in Cologne goes back a long way. People of the Jewish faith probably settled in the Rhineland as early as the 1st and 2nd century, in Trier, Mainz and of course also Cologne. But only in Cologne is there written evidence of a Jewish community in Roman times. That they settled far away from their homeland is a sad chapter. After the first Jewish-Roman war, which ended in 74 AD, numerous Jews had already been driven out of their homeland. The following decades were followed by other wars, which drove numerous other Jewish people to flee. Jewish people settled everywhere in the Mediterranean, but also in Cologne at that time. In 321, the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great issued the following decree, quote, we allow all city councils by general law to appoint Jews to the city senate. End quote. What this exactly entailed, I have already mentioned in episode 15 about the religions in Jewish Cologne. The mention of the Cologne Jewish community is thus the oldest written record of Jewish life north of the Alps in Europe. I was allowed to look at a copy of this document, which otherwise slumbers in the archives of the Vatican in Rome, live in the late summer of 2021 in the Columba Museum, that is, in Cologne. The contents of the decree of 321 are recorded in the Codex Theodosianus from the 6th century. I have no idea how to spell that Greek name in English, so how to pronounce it. Greek name in English, sorry for that. But this Codex Theodosianus, an Eastern Roman collection of laws, was written down on parchment. Like most ancient texts, 
the original copy of the decree of 321 has not survived. Ancient texts were mostly written on papyrus, a great material for writing, yes, but hardly suitable to last for centuries or millennia. It crumbles after only a few decades if stored incorrectly, which often happened in the turmoil of late antiquity. It was not until the early Middle Ages, as in this case, that people resorted to the far more expensive parchment, which is much more durable, that ancient texts could be permanently preserved. However, much will also have been lost in time, but I digress. Of course, I put the certificate on the homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. There you can have a look at it. I was allowed to photograph it at that time, and of course I will put it on social media the coming days. Based on this historical evidence, today's Jewish community in Cologne calls itself the oldest community north of the Alps. What we unfortunately do not know, where did the Jewish people live in Roman times? Where was their synagogue? Where was their cemetery located outside the city? Was there continuously a Jewish community in Cologne? Might they have perished in the sack of Cologne in 355 AD by the Franks or fled before, during or after? What about uh, during the Merovingian or Carolingian periods, so the early Middle Ages? Unfortunately, we simply do not know. There is no evidence of that, unfortunately. It is generally known that in the empire of Charles the Great and his direct successors, Jews appear in historical sources as merchants or physicians. As important international traders or even doctors, they were under royal protection. How exactly Jewish life in Cologne might have looked like in this period, an archaeological find could show us, a valuable clue to the time of the 9th century. South of the Praetorium in Cologne, the Roman governor's palace and thus under the present town hall square, there is a Jewish ritual bath from very ancient times whose origins are thought to date back to the 9th century. That it is located here is no coincidence, because here was the Jewish quarter of Cologne in the high middle ages. I will try to show that as accurately as possible on my homepage thehistoryofcologne.com and on social media. Because the local streets around the Jewish quarter have not changed since that time, only the development within the area. In that place today stands the city hall, the associated so-called Spanish building that is uh, part of the city hall, and the Museum Miqua, which is currently under construction at the time of this recording in December 2022, which will represent the history of this neighborhood. Oh yes, dear staff members at Museum Miqua, I know some of you are listening here. We had already exchanged ideas at some events in the recent past. I would still like to be there when the construction site is officially visited again. You know how to reach me. Please get in touch. Probably this area on which once stood the Roman Praetorium, the governor's palace, increasingly became the Jewish quarter of Cologne from the 9th century. The Praetorium was abandoned by the Frankish rulers, or perhaps was no longer in a structurally usable condition. The discussion about the Praetorium we had already about 40 episodes before about. Thus, between today's streets and um, 
spoiler alert, um, German names are incoming, but between today's Cologne's streets like Kleine Budengasse in the north, Unter Goldschmied, uh, Goldsmith Street in the west, Obenmarspforte, Marsgate Street in the south, and the continuous Judengasse, Jewish Alley, and Bürgerstraße, Citizens Street in the east, the medieval Jewish quarter of Cologne was formed, an almost rectangular, densely built-up area which was located in the center of the city. When the archbishops of Cologne received supervision over the Jewish population for Cologne from the middle of the 10th century, a protection that had to be paid for by the Jews in money in keeping with uh, the spirit of the time. A protection that the Jews had to pay for. A lot. The period of the High Middle Ages is a time when harsh action was taken against heretics. That is against all Christians who did not follow the official path given by the Church. So Christians who saw the belief in God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit a little differently. People of the Jewish faith, however, were not included. They were not seen as heretics. They were considered unbelievers in the Christian world because of their faith, but not as heretics, that is, deviants from the Christian faith. Thus, however, Jewish people lived in a dangerous state of limbo, both legally but also in everyday life in medieval Europe. In addition, there was the increasing envy of the Christian world. The success of Jewish merchants, who were well connected in the then-known world, because in every city, every trading place, there was a Jewish community they could uh, have their links to and their contacts to, the church railed against the alleged Christ killers, which is, of course, nonsense. The medieval society of estates is formed from the 9th century onwards, thus placing the Jewish people in an outsider role. Despite royal protection, they are not allowed to acquire land, only Christians are allowed to do so. In a world deeply marked by agrarian culture, this weighs heavily. So the Jews are drawn to the cities, as was the case in Cologne. Coexistence between the Jewish and the majority Christian population was subject to constant changes. Very long periods of almost good coexistence alternated with extremely brutal short periods in the High Middle Ages. One of them would happen in the year 1096, when crusaders on the way to the Holy Land passed through Cologne several times. However, I would want to illuminate that separately in a moment. The Vita Anonis gives us the first written testimony of Jewish life in Cologne since late antiquity, since the year 321, more than 700 years later. The manuscript mentions that the Jews wept at Anno's death in 1075 because he had been their protector. There's also mention in Latin of an inter-Judeus, so translated the Cologne Jewish quarter. It's the first evidence that there is a Jewish quarter in Cologne. As the 11th century drew to a close, things were going comparatively well for Jewish people in the empire, despite their everyday hostilities. Also in Cologne, several hundreds of them lived in Cologne alone. They had often emigrated to the city on the Rhine from northern Italy or France. Along with many other cities in the empire and especially along the Rhine, 
Cologne was considered as a center of European Jews, but then the First Crusade began in 1095. The Crusades in themselves are an extremely complex subject. The correct account of the First Crusade alone, which lasted from 1095 to 1099 and ended with the bloody conquest of Jerusalem by a Christian army, is so complex that I cannot do justice to the subject here. Please, please keep this in mind in case I unknowingly omit something here. On November 27, 1095, Pope Urban II held a synod in Clermont in France to which all the Catholic bishops of Europe were invited. Urban warned of the dwindling status of Christianity in the Holy Land and described the injustice done to the Christians and Christian pilgrims living there under the Islamic rulers. The Pope's motives for declaring a crusade were manifold and went far beyond the mere military conquest of Jerusalem. But as I said, the topic is far too big for this little podcast and its subject, the history of Cologne. Nevertheless, it is interesting that about 60,000 people set out for the battle in the Holy Land, who were assured of the Pope's forgiveness of all their sins if they took part. Technically cleverly chosen by the Pope because it hit a nerve of that time which occupied the people in their minds. Securing one's own salvation and going to heaven. However, these numerous participants were almost exclusively French. From the Rhineland, in turn, hardly any took part. The reasons for this are manifold. The so-called investiture controversy was still in full swing. Emperor Henry IV and the papacy continued to fight fiercely over who had the final right to appoint bishops and put them into office in the empire. And also the German bishops were at that time then nevertheless often gladly on the side of the emperor and supported anti-popes. But, as you know, the Rhineland was not far from France, and is not far away from France, and so the Rhineland was beset by crusader armies passing through on their way to Jerusalem. For there was not only the one crusader army. From many different regions, armies of various compositions formed and set out. I will put a map showing that on my homepage to historyofcologne.com and on social media the coming days. But why did this pose a threat to the Jewish communities living in the cities of the Rhineland for many decades or maybe centuries? After all, the crusaders wanted to recapture the sites in the Holy Land from the Muslims. Well, for the Christian crusader armies, however, it was clear if they wanted to defeat the infidels in their own eyes in faraway Jerusalem, they first had to destroy their own infidels at home. And in their eyes, this included the Jews as well. This made them, as the only large and visible minority besides the Christian majority population, a target. But the persecution and violence was of course not only religiously motivated. Setting out on a long journey to Jerusalem was costly. The also Christian crusader army was followed not only by rich knights and nobles, 
Although Pope Urban II had addressed mainly knights and nobles at the synod, in the first place, the message that by participating in the crusade, everyone would be absolved of any sins found great appeal among the ordinary population as well. Therefore, many ordinary people participated, hoping to gain some more extra money and material prosperity from the plundering of Jewish property as they made their way to the Holy Land. Since, as a crusader, you got all your sins forgiven anyway, at the end, in the eyes of the perpetrators, this was then the icing on the cake. These unprofessional armies of normal people, so to speak, ordinary people, not high nobles and knights, were the first to set out for the Holy Land. Tens of thousands of peasants, low nobles, farmhands and day laborers, large in numbers, but uncoordinated, hardly controllable as a group, and above all, militarily inexperienced. Once they would reach the Holy Land, if they even reached the Holy Land, they would be crushed in one single battle <laughs> by Muslim armies. But before they even got there, these groups were also the first to go on the rampage, plundering through the Jewish communities along the Rhine. For example, on April 13th, 1096, the wandering preacher Peter of Amiens arrived in Cologne with his multitudes. Peter of Amiens was one of the many preachers who inspired the masses of ordinary people to join his crusade, the People's Crusade. Interestingly, this time nothing happened. Peter of Amiens and his army uh, immediately moved on and left Cologne without harming the Jewish population. But they seem to have burned numerous cities and towns with Jewish population other, uh, in other places in the Rhine. I was really confused when looking this up in the books I got. Sometimes it was really um, confusing because some sources say they did plunder cities with Jewish population in it, and some sort of say, no, they did not. It was the professional crusading army that did that. I have to say, I did not get the overview or the insights that I wish I had right now to present it to you. Well, maybe somebody knows it, but let's continue. But I told you, a very complex topic, this first crusade. Then, on May 29th in 1096, the first news arrived in Cologne that the Jewish communities in Worms and Mainz had been attacked by a crusader army and largely been killed. The Jewish community in Cologne knew that it would not be long before the same would be done to them as soon as the next contingent for the crusade passed through Cologne on its way to the Holy Land. News of the unprecedented bloodshed against the Jewish people of Europe also reached the imperial court, which was currently stuck in northern Italy. Emperor Henry IV tried to protect the Jews in his empire from persecution and death. Yes, exactly, the Henry IV that Anno II Archbishop of Cologne had once kidnapped over 30 years ago. He explicitly instructed that the nobility and clergy had to do everything possible to protect the Jewish people. After all, most of the Jewish people in his realm were his Jews. Not only charity, but also the fear of losing an important source of income were probably the emperor's motives. But on the one hand, Henry's rule in the empire was weak at the time, like most of his 50-year-long uh, reign. Again, he was weak. 
He was virtually stuck in northern Italy and could not cross the Alpine passes because his southern German nobles had conspired against him and kept him out of the empire that way. So in this way, Henry IV was not around in the empire north of the Alps and he could do little to nothing to protect his Jews against all those persecutions and pogroms. On the other hand, the protection of the Jewish inhabitants of Cologne was here in the city no longer with the emperor, but directly with the Archbishop of Cologne directly. Probably one of the many privileges that once Bruno had been able to secure permanently along with numerous other rights for the office of the respective Archbishop of Cologne back in the middle of the 10th century. It is interesting how the Jewish people in Cologne tried to protect themselves they probably did not have much trust in their Cologne archbishop at first. But let's let the sources, the historical written sources speak. One of them comes from the Jewish chronicler Solomon Bar Simson, who around 1140, a few decades later, recorded the events in Cologne of May-June 1096 when crusaders arrived in the city. Quote, it was on the 5th of Sivan, so that's May 29th, the day before the Feast of Shavuot, that the message came from Speyer, Worms and Mainz to Cologne, the beautiful city, the place of justice, from which went forth justice and care for our brethren scattered to the four winds. And here too the killing began and lasted from the Feast of Shavuot to the 8th day of Tammuz, so that's June the 1st. When they heard that the communities were slain, they fled each to his Christian acquaintance and stayed there the two days of the feast. But on the morning of the third day, the storm broke out. The enemies destroyed Jewish houses, robbed and looted, tore down the synagogue, took out the Torah scrolls, desecrated them and scattered them in the streets. On the same day that once the earth trembled and its pillars shook because the Torah was given, now it was torn, burnt, trampled, desecrated by wicked men. End quote. We learn a lot from this written source, astonishing things even. The Jewish population fled to friendly Christian houses in the city of Cologne before the looting of the neighborhood began by crusaders and other Cologne citizens. Probably they took shelter with their Christian business partners in the city. This is indeed astonishing since they did not go to their actual patron, their actual protector, the Archbishop of Cologne, and try to find shelter in his palace at the cathedral, because in Trier, Worms and Mainz, the Jewish people had done so, which unfortunately had oft not protected them from death. And maybe that's one thing the Jewish population of Cologne knew already. Hey, if you um, try to hide in the Archbishop's palace, you will not be safe. News travel quickly along the Rhine. The Archbishop of Cologne at that time was Hermann III von Hochstaden. For some of you, the name von Hochstaden might sound familiar, because with Konrad von Hochstaden we have in 1248, so <laughs> quite some time later, the Archbishop who will lay the foundation stone of the new Cologne Cathedral of today. His ancestor, Hermann, 150 years earlier, had already held numerous spiritual offices within the Archbishopric of Cologne under his mentor, Archbishop Anno II, whom you know now really well, I think. 
Hermann had thus classically climbed the career ladder to the top within the Archbishopric of Cologne. The further course of events would show why the Jewish population of Cologne had little confidence in Hermann as their protector. Despite the temporary rescue of the Jewish community of Cologne, everything they owned in terms of belongings was lost during those days and ended up in the hands of the looters. The synagogue with the Torah scrolls was destroyed. The question of the perpetrators is of great relevance, of course. Unfortunately, this cannot be entirely reconstructed from the historical written sources for Cologne. Jewish chroniclers do state that in Mainz, Trier and Worms, the city population was also involved, and not just the crusader army passing through, but exactly who the perpetrators were in Cologne is not clear. Nevertheless, it can hardly be the case that there were not also free riders among the Christian citizens of Cologne who were only too happy to enrich themselves at the expense of their Jewish fellow neighbors. What I think is interesting, though, is that however the Christian inhabitants of Cologne who hid fellow Jews in their homes seem to have had the means and the power to prevent the looters from entering their homes and killing the Jews that they tried to hide and save. Archbishop Hermann hardly seemed to be in control of the situation during these days, let alone did anything to prevent the looting. Only after the Crusader army had left, which had plundered the Jewish quarter for a few days, did he take up the issue. Hermann wanted to prevent another pogrom in the city and disperse the Jewish community to places in the countryside around Cologne, like to Kerpen, Neuss, and even to Xanten or even Gelsen as today's Dutch border. Well, if you're not familiar with Cologne, you might never heard of these uh, places, but believe me, they are around the city of Cologne, even today. A few weeks passed, but on June 24, 1096, disaster struck. A new contingent of crusaders passed through Neuss and killed all Jewish citizens of Cologne who were there, including Neuss' own Jewish community. Here I would like to quote an excerpt from the already-known report of Salomo Bar Simson, but please be aware, as said in the intro of this episode, that we are talking about worse cruelties here. Quote, On that day the Feast of John was celebrated there, for which the people from the villages around had flocked together. They slew the pious Marshemuel ben Asher and his two sons on the banks of the Rhine and buried him in the sand of the river, but one of the sons they hanged in mockery at the gate of his house. Another pious man, Ar Itchak Halevi, they tormented with severe tortures until he lost consciousness. Then they baptized him. When he regained consciousness, after three days, he returned to his house in Cologne, lingered there, and rested for an hour, then went to the Rhine and threw himself into the stream. His dead body floated as far as noise. End quote. These are, of course, cruel reports. They really make me shudder. These forced baptisms were a common practice during the pogroms in 1096. The Crusaders gave the Jews a choice, convert to the Christian faith, get baptized, or die at the hands of the Crusaders as infidels. Neither was an option for the Jewish population. And so horrific acts of desperation occurred. 
In many places, the scattered Cologne Jews killed each other. Better to perish like that than to be baptized Christian or die at the hands of impure people. Reports of mass killings by the own hand among the Jewish people of Cologne are known from several places. In Wevelingshofen, a present-day district of Grevenbruch, Altena, Xandenmörs and Jülich. For those, as I said, unfamiliar with the places, these are all places around Cologne, most near the Rhine. In this way, all the Jews of Cologne were under the direct protection of the Archbishop of Cologne and trusted in him, perished at the hands of the Crusaders or at their own hands. Only the group of Cologne Jews hiding in Kerpen survived the massacres of 1096, but in all other places where Jews were been sent to to be kept safe by crusader armies that were marching through the cities along the Rhine, they did not survive. How large the number of Jewish people killed was, unfortunately, is not entirely um, known. However, since in addition to the Cologne Jewish community, also those of the local Jews died in which the Cologne Jews had sought refuge, it can already be assumed that 2,000 to 3,000 people died in those days in early summer 1096. Men, women, and children. I had often asked myself beforehand, how could I present such topics? Be sure it got under my skin a lot, and I hope I've done this as correctly as I can do. Even with a distance of almost a thousand years especially when reading those contemporary sources. Rabbi Joel Halevi, born in Bonn, a city already well known to us, only 30 kilometers south of Cologne, being a former Roman military camp, lived and worked in Cologne at the beginning of the 12th century and has heard reports from the few survivors. He wrote an elegy about the events that I would like to quote to you here. Quote, How God's hand has laid such a heavy hand on the highly esteemed glorious congregation of Cologne. My head is bowed, my soul shudders at their terrible fate. The enemies wanted to tempt them to foreign service, saying, Lead them to death, who does not want to confess our faith. But Jacob always chose the only God. Weeping, the chief cheered them on to law-abidingness. Let us be strong and courageous, and our soul will acquire eternal life only a little while longer, and we shall be with the holy beings in the heavenly palace. Spurred on by such speeches, they remained steadfast and gave up life and limp. The treacherous enemies condemned them to death, stabbed them with swords, and lance, yet their soul remained attached to their good. Fathers kissed their whimpering infants, consecrating them as once on Moriah to sacrifice. Mothers hid their faces so as not to see the death of their children. The filling mother's heart quivered, and tears ran from their cheeks. The cruel ones, they slid pregnant women's bodies and buried them alive in rocky caves. Others were gullishly martyred, throwing into boiling cauldrons, braided alive on the wheel. All this came upon us, yet we did not fall away from you or grumble against your will. You are just. Your poor afflicted people were severely punished. Oh, look, 
eternal one, and judged the enemy who lies in wait like a bear for the house of Israel, the people of God, who have fallen by the sword. End quote. The pogroms of 1096 were a European turning point. Since then, the door was open to restrict the rights of Jewish people, which were not extensive anyway before. Prohibition of carrying weapons, which is not ideal in an arms-bearing society like that of the Middle Ages. Greater dependence on the protector, such as the emperor or the respective bishop. Higher special taxes, etc. In addition, there were more and more hostilities and crude accusations, which you have all surely heard before in anti-Semitic statements of the Nazis or someone else who is anti-Semitic or anti-Judaist, like poisoning wells, sacrilege against the host, or ritual murders of Christians and eating babies. All nonsense, but at that time socially acceptable throughout Europe and sadly still in a in some groups today. Despite all the death and destruction, all these reports of Jewish chroniclers written after the programs of 1096 show one thing. Jewish life returned to Cologne and the Rhineland shortly thereafter. The dwellings of the Jewish quarter were rebuilt and so was the synagogue. New Jewish immigrants settled in Cologne. What remained, of course, and this is proven by the historical sources cited here, was the memory of what had happened in 1096. From the year 1130, we have the first evidence of the so-called Jewish Shrine Book. What does that mean? At that time, people in the city used writing to organize everyday life together, just as we do in a greater scale today, be it in administrations or via chat on our cell phones. In these shrine books, which are something like medieval land registers, lists of inhabitants were made, but also things like legal contracts or property sales. At that time, the entries of the shrine books were written on large parchment cards. The city had been divided into shrine districts for this purpose. These were oriented exactly to the boundaries of the respective parishes, the so-called Kirchspiele in German. The shrine books were kept in chests, which were also called shrines at that time, while for us today, shrines are rather primary objects that store either relics or goals in churches. These shrine books thus represent an important written historical source for Cologne, as many of them are still preserved. However, when the Cologne City Archive building collapsed during the construction of the new North-South subway in 2009, some of them were damaged and are no longer in as good condition as they were before the collapse. I hope to have a shrine book shown to me sometime in the new Cologne City Archive building, but I have to admit I never had the time yet to contact the Cologne City Archive, which is a bummer really. I don't really have time to research everything on my own, no, I'm dependent on secondary literature mainly, but sometimes it would be really nice to see a primary historical source. I have to put that on my list for the next year. I'll try to find a picture of such a shrine book and put it on my homepage, thehistoryofcolon.com, and later on on social media, of course, as a post. Only later did people in Cologne start writing down the entries for the shrine books 
not a large parchment pages, but actually literally in real books that were bound like nowadays books. These were then kept in the respective parish church in that chest that was called shrine back then. The Jewish quarter, and that is the special thing here, also had its own shrine book. But wait a minute, you might ask. Surely a Jewish community would hardly have a parish church, the place where they stored a, a shrine book. Was the shrine book therefore kept in the synagogue in the Jewish quarter? No. That was the special thing about the Jewish shrine book. It was not kept in the synagogue, but in the Christian parish church of St. Lawrence, which was in the immediate vicinity of the medieval Jewish quarter, quasi directly on the other side of the street of nowadays Untergoldschmidt, translated uh, at the goldsmiths. Unfortunately, both the synagogue and the parish church of St. Lawrence no longer exist. You will find out why in the course of the podcast. Where was this synagogue located in the Jewish quarter? Well, right in the middle, so to speak. Unfortunately, this is difficult to show at the moment because the Mikwa Museum is currently being built there, which will present the history of this Jewish quarter. But I'm very sure that in the Finnish Museum, it will be possible to see exactly what was located in this densely built Jewish quarter because the archaeological finds will be integrated into this new museum. One will be able to walk through the excavated areas of the medieval Jewish quarter and so I guess also through the former Jewish synagogue. The parish church of St. Lawrence was once located where nowadays the customer center of the city of Cologne for the downtown district is nowadays. Ah, what a great place. How many hours I spent there waiting and waiting and waiting for a new passport or a new ID. Like so many other old parish churches, St. Lawrence became a victim of secularization and was demolished in 1818, freeing up the space for uh, the area so that nowadays the city of Cologne has an administrative building standing there. The interesting thing about the Jewish Shrine Book in St. Lawrence is that it also records transactions not only between Jews, but also between Jews and Christians. And the whole thing was written down in Hebrew. For example, for 1135, it is written in the Jewish Shrine Book that there were 35 houses in Jewish ownership in the Jewish quarter. By 1340, so many centuries, several centuries later, the number would increase to 70 houses with about 800 inhabitants. And in 13 40, this would mean that Jewish people would make up like 2% of the whole population of the city. That was like 40 to 50,000. I would like to come to the exact meaning of the Shrine Book and why they were organized in the respective parishes another time in due course, but I thought that I have to add this in this episode as well. Yeah, and that would bring me to the end for this episode. That was the last episode of the year 2022, a year that we certainly imagined to be somewhat different, above all, a little more peaceful. The leisure of a historian at this time in which we live 
was mostly to be able to explore the most terrible events in history from your couch or your chair, knowing that no matter how bad the past was, one was still in the here and now, safe and in a prosperity that never existed before, at least in Europe. All this was shattered in 2022, but I don't want to digress too far. I want to keep this podcast a safe space where you can just listen to old history about Cologne and do not have to worry about what is today. I would like to thank you all for this year. A year of new records in terms of downloads, new subscriptions, new Patreons, and opportunities besides uh, this podcast as well for me personally. I owe this all to you. Thanks to you, the multifaceted history of Cologne is made known to the world. It's always so nice to see this world map my podcast hoster uh, delivers to me and showing me where all my listeners are. It looks really like a map of a world empire, so to speak. I would also like to thank my Patreons on patreon.com. Thanks to your regular donations, you take a lot of the costs of my shoulders, which add up to like 100 euros every month in terms of hosting costs from my homepage, the podcast itself, and like book purchases. The next time we will hear from each other again will be the year 2023. And until then, you can check my social media accounts but yeah that's the last episode for this year we will hear each other again in the year 2023 so until then thanks for listening and auf wiedersehen